0: And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, you had a great piece I want to say this morning uh, for our blog about some of the uh, interesting dynamics happening in the economy right now. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, we're, we're in this weird moment. We're obviously, at least on a headline basis, the economy still, still seems to be growing very rapidly out of uh, the pandemic. Delta variants aside, and we'll see how the effects that those have. On the other hand, we are seeing inflation uh, in a way that we really haven't seen in years, and there's significant uh, debate about why that is, the degree to which policy has contributed to that inflation, the degree to which policy should ameliorate that inflation, mm-hmm. and of course, as you sort of discussed in a very big picture framework in that piece, there's just these sort of like these bigger questions about supply side capacity and the various. Uh, log jams and supply chain bottlenecks that we're seeing really all over the place right now.
1: Totally. So I think I called it the choke point economy um, in that piece. And the idea is that even though on an absolute level, uh, you know, economic growth looks pretty good. There's a lot of stuff being produced in the economy. On an absolute level, but on a relative basis, you can see these blockages, these shortages showing up in lots of different things um, and in ways that are not always um, productive or helpful to society or the wider economy. And so the question then is, do governments and policymakers start to step in to try to relieve some of those blockages?
0: Yeah. And there are so many interesting policy things. And, you know, this is, of course, something that we've talked about a long time. There is the Fed's new framework seems to uh, be much more willing Mm. to tolerate some periods of higher inflation in the pursuit of full employment. There is the massive amount of uh, fiscal spending, the likes of which we've never seen before in 2020. There's further uh, there's a further infrastructure bill being debated. So Amid all of these sort of moving pieces in the real economy, we're also in sort of, I guess you could kind of say uncharted uncharted <laughs> uh, policy territory as well.
1: Yeah, I get that it's a cliche to say that things are uncharted um, at this point in time, but it's true. Like the economic shock that we just experienced in 2020 and 2021 was very unusual and in many ways unprecedented. And now we have an unprecedented period of fiscal stimulus. And also, that's coinciding with this new framework from the Federal Reserve yeah. and new ways of central banks really thinking about monetary policy and how it works with government spending.
0: Well, I think uh, that is the perfect seg into our guest. I am absolutely thrilled um, to get to speak to our guest today. It's a real treat uh, to have him on, uh, odd lots that he would come on. We are going to be speaking with Rob Kaplan, he is the president. Of the Dallas Federal Reserve, uh been in that role since late 2015. So he's seen a lot and he's in the thick of it with all of these policy choices that have to be made right now. President Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Uh great to be with you, Joe and Tracy.
0: This is this is really a real treat to have you on. Thank you so much. Let's just start uh very big picture. I mean, there it still appears that we have this rapid uh growth, this rapid rebound out of um out of the uh, crisis. We do have this uh, elevated inflation clearly by uh, various readings, some debates about whether how transitory it is, when when it will normalize. Just give us, let's just start with your assessment of the macro picture right now.
2: So it's still our view at the Dallas Fed that GDP growth for uh, 2021 will be in the neighborhood of six and a half percent. That growth will moderate as we go into 2022, you know, somewhere, let's say, between two and a half and three percent. We think that will trend down toward four and a half percent unemployment rate by the end of this year. But I'll come back to that. We think we'll end the year with a PCE inflation reading of something like three point eight percent. So uh, very elevated. And I'll, I'll talk more about that. Uh, the big issues we're facing uh, between now, uh, certainly in the end of the year, are more about supply than demand. There's plenty of demand in this economy. You, you all were talking about it in your conversation, but everything we see suggests that consumer demand is strong and demand generally is strong. The, the issues we have are working out these supply-demand imbalances, not just on materials, but significantly on labor. Uh, we've had substantial number of retirements. We have people who are not in the workforce because they're caregivers. We still have fear of infection, and I think that uh, supply-demand imbalance regarding labor is going to be more persistent than people might expect.
1: What can the Fed and central banks more widely actually do to resolve supply-demand imbalances?
2: So my own view on that is, for starters, to be cognizant of them and to be cognizant that that our tools, and in particular, in the short run, our asset purchases are much more adept at stimulating demand. They're not so adept at dealing with supply-demand imbalances. And so for me, I think patience, the way I would define patience would be you might want to lower the RPMs on the car. Now that we've gotten out of the ditch from 2020 and early 21, and we're on more level land, I think, I think we may want to show patience by reducing the RPMs on the car and be willing to allow these supply-demand imbalances time to unfold. But for me, that doesn't mean continuing our purchases like we were doing. It means showing some patience by realizing we're in a different situations than 2020 and early 21 and showing some restraint uh, on our purchases.
0: So I guess we're just jumping right into <laughs> the big policy questions is, uh, that everyone wants to know. Do you agree with your colleague, uh, Chris Waller, then that perhaps it makes sense to begin the taper soon, maybe as soon as uh, October, get it finished sometime early next year?
2: So, so to answer that, let me step back for a moment. People talk a lot about substantial further progress. We have a substantial further progress benchmark. What I've been saying for the last number of weeks and months is there's one other significant criteria, and I would, I would refer to that as efficacy. So the first thing you want to look at, and the best analogy I can think, if you're a doctor prescribing medicine to someone who's been through a traumatic event, you always want to first be assessing what's the efficacy of the medication. And you want to be willing to adjust your views on that. And, and w- what I'm seeing now is the efficacy, the benefits of purchasing 80 billion of treasuries and 40 billion of mortgage-backed securities a month I think it was very uh, high efficacy in 2020, early 21. As we sit here today, I see some unintended side effects, and uh, again, those purchases are more adept at stimulating demand. But we don't have a demand problem right now. I worry that they're creating excesses in risk-taking, excesses in the housing market, uh, maybe exacerbating imbalances in the economy. And so for me, therefore, the bar for substantial further progress is lower because I don't see – I'm starting to question the efficacy of our purchases. So in that regard, I would rather begin adjusting these purchases soon I don't want to actually get into what the months or the calendar, but I would be supportive of adjusting these purchases soon. Uh, but the other thing I would say is once we start the adjustment process, I would probably be prefer to have it be more gradual. And what does gradual mean to me? Probably means baseline over eight months, let's say. So that would be 10 million of treasuries and 5 million billion a month of mortgage-backed securities. So I'd like to start sooner rather than later. Start soon, but I would probably like to be more gradual than than uh, than others you've mentioned. Mm.
1: So in recent history, I th- I think one of the big criticisms of the Fed has always been that they sort of jumped the gun and hiked rates too soon, uh, and basically started undercutting the employment recovery without actual evidence that inflation was becoming a problem. I realize our current situation is somewhat different because we have low interest rates in addition to, um, monetary easing that you just mentioned, but how are you thinking about the risks of tightening policy versus the risks of, um, staying loose for too long?
2: So in, in that regard, I would differentiate what our, what our actions are going to be on the fed funds rate. Hmm from what our actions are going to be on our asset purchases. I think those are those two subjects for me should be more fully divorced. Uh, on the Fed funds rate, that's not a decision, in my opinion, for 2021. That's something we'll debate based on conditions in 2022. Uh, I think the near-term judgment is on purchases. There, There may be arguments that in years past, we might have move the Fed funds rate earlier than we should have. I actually am not sure those, those arguments. I'm not sure I agree with those arguments. But even setting that aside, I am much more confident about the efficacy of keeping the Fed funds rate where it is right now. I am much more doubtful about the value of these purchases. My concern is they accentuate uh, excesses and balances. They tend to be more beneficial to people who own assets than those who don't. This inflation discussion, which I know we can get into, affects big businesses differently than small, mid-sized businesses. And I think uh, these supply-demand imbalances and inflation pressures affect low to moderate-income communities differently than they do uh, higher-income communities. And I think, for which yeah. I can get into what why I say that, but for all those reasons, uh, I would, I think, adjusting these purchases sooner might actually allow us to be more patient on the Fed funds rate down the road. And the analogy you've heard me use is, I'd rather take my foot off the accelerator soon so we don't need to hit the brakes down the road. And I think that's that may be the case in this situation.
0: That's really interesting. And you know, obviously, I think, or at least some in the market would interpret the commencement of a taper, reducing purchases, as some sort of signal on rates. So it's like, okay, we're starting the, let's say the Fed were to start tapering in October, and then maybe the market implicitly pulls forward its estimated date for the first rate hike. Do you think there's, uh, the therefore, then, that, to your point exactly, that uh, the commencement of a tapering should be uh, paired with some sort of communication, some sort of specific communication, to your point, that this should not necessarily be interpreted as a sign of some sequencing sign that okay those first rate hikes are therefore right around the corner.
2: Yes, I do think that. And in all my communications I've emphasized that by adjusting purchases sooner, it may actually allow us to be more patient in the future on the Fed funds rate and and uh, in my in my view, those two subjects should be divorced and we should be clear in our public communication that those two processes are divorced. I think the, uh, the these purchases and injecting this amount of liquidity into the economy every month has its own set of considerations and its own set of side effects, which I think are different than the considerations and side effects of, of uh, how we handle the Fed funds rate. Um, a
1: slightly related question, but I You know, I'm looking at uh, the terminal right now, and I see the yield on the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury is at like 1.1%. And the downward trends in bonds has been something that's confusing a lot of people, and a lot of people have been racking their brains over why this is happening. Is that a concern for the Fed as it starts to discuss things like tapering, maybe not interest rate hikes? but tapering. Are you worried at all that the bond market seems to be either anticipating that easing is going to stick around for a long time or anticipating that growth might slow in the future?
2: So I'll give you my own take uh, on what what I'm seeing in the bond market. Uh, Over the horizon, in other words, after we get out of this rebound from the COVID pandemic, there's no question that labor force growth we think in the out years is decelerating due to aging and we felt that pre pandemic that trend is still alive and well and is a is a challenge we have to face our our population growth is decelerating our labor force force growth is going to decelerate and then the question is will productivity improvements help offset that that and so far they haven't and why haven't they uh, our own view at the Dallas Fed is That if you've got a college education, your technology and technology enabled disruption is probably helping your productivity. If you're one of the 46 million people with a high school education or less, technology and technology enabled disruption mean your job is being regularly either restructured or even eliminated. And we're not seeing the productivity improvements. So we've got to improve early childhood literacy, skills training, and the whole educational ecosystem in order to get the benefits. For the whole population, of these uh, of these technology investments. So, how's that get to the bond market? If 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 productivity growth doesn't help offset slowing weight, lab, labor force growth, the out year growth is sluggish, and I think the bond market is recognizing that out year growth, not just in the United States but globally, is relatively sluggish because of aging populations and skepticism about productivity offsetting that. That's number one. The, the other thing you can't quite tell, and I always uh, caution myself and my team, with the Fed purchasing this uh, much treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, the signal that you might get from the bond market might be a little bit uh, distorted right now. It's certainly distorted as it relates to credit spreads, real yields, et cetera. And so that's another factor. But it, I'm very conscious of what the 10-year is saying is something I'm mindful of as we assess the economy and think through what's appropriate monetary policy.
0: more about uh, the productivity problem. I mean, we started this discussion, me and Tracy, talking about some of these supply chain issues, these sort of like real breaks that are in the economy. There is a limit to say how many homes can be built because there is a limit to how much lumber could be delivered. There's a limit to how many cars could be made because there is only so many semiconductors. And I'm sure, you know, all of these things are very things you're very aware of. When you think about like, all right, you mentioned, say, early childhood education and literacy. Setting aside the specific bills that are being debated in D.C., is there a role in your view for sort of aggressive uh, fiscal expansion, infrastructure uh, investment to simply improve the supply side capacity of the economy such that we don't have these breaks going forward when we have a period of potentially high growth?
2: So I do believe that investment in infrastructure, including Wi-Fi, uh, is different than fiscal policy that simply stimulates current spending. i.e., fiscal policy, either tax-related or otherwise, that just stimulates current spending, gives you a short-term bump, and then you revert back down to trend, based on all the work we've done here. Infrastructure spending, on the other hand, and those type of investments ideally, if they're well done, should be 20 or 30 year investments that should help improve productivity. And then related to that, we need to improve early childhood literacy, particularly for the fastest growing demographic groups. And we need to improve uh, skills training. Some of that can be done with local money, by the way, may not take government money. But I think that's another investment that will help improve productivity. And I think all those investments my own view would be money well spent.
1: How do you see monetary policy more generally interacting with fiscal stimulus and a greater propensity, at least in the U.S., towards government spending? So we hear a lot from central banks talking about, you know, monetary policy can augment fiscal stimulus and there's the potential for a sort of virtuous cycle there. But I'd love to get your thoughts on it and maybe talk specifically about how it's Changed or hasn't changed um, the way you and the Fed um, think about monetary policy.
2: My own view is I do not think it's the role of the Federal Reserve to either monetize the debt or to facilitate uh, government spending. Now, in the in the height of the crisis, I think it was important that the Fed bolstered the functioning of the Treasury market and took a number of the extraordinary actions we took in order to ensure that the government can do what it needed to do from a fiscal side to fight this crisis. But setting aside what we did in a crisis, I think in more normal times, which we're now emerging into, I don't think the Fed, it's an appropriate role for the Fed to be monetizing the debt or facilitating government spending. And I think it's very critical that we don't convey the impression to the public that that's part of our role and i think there might be some confusion out there on that on that subject.
0: Let's zoom out a little bit actually and talk more about uh the conduct of monetary policy because it is august 2021 so we are approaching the 1 year anniversary of the jackson hole conference we're going to have another one the J- but the last year's was pretty consequential and the federal reserve uh the chairman uh rolled out this new uh, framework flexible average inflation targeting with this uh premise in mind that, uh, you know, 2% would not necessarily be the ceiling, that there would be some uh, catch up potentially, that the Fed would be more uh, patient. And furthermore, uh, the that, that framework was bolstered by further messaging that there's going to be a real renewed focus on hitting the employment side of the mandate and that it was not going to be uh, this sort of like preemptive tightening. Tracy already sort of referenced it. But really want to see like evidence of the uh employment side of the economy maxing out. You were sort of skeptical and you were dissented a little bit, and you also worried that some of the policies that established would quote tie the hands of future committees. How do you feel about them now? Was it right for the Fed to adopt this view of let's really uh go as far as we can on the employment side? And how do you see in August 2021 your concerns about future committee's hands being tied.
2: So on the framework, I supported and voted for the framework. But on the premise, my interpretation of the framework was we needed to uh, anchor inflation expectations so that they were were more uh, appropriately anchored at 2%. And we'd been running behind 2% for a number of years. And so it was appropriate to be willing to tolerate Inflation running moderately above 2% in order to anchor those expectations at 2%. I support that. Uh, I also supported being somewhat less preemptive in anticipating inflation at the cost of potentially uh, improving uh, employment and inclusive employment in the economy. So that's on the one hand. After we approved the framework, then we got into forward guidance in our September 2020 meeting. That's where I dissented. And here's why. For two reasons. What that forward guidance said is we're going to keep rates at zero until we've reached full employment and we've reached uh, price stability. And I felt uh, I dissented for two reasons there. Number one, I don't think it's good practice for the Fed to be specifically making commitments on the Fed funds rate literally years in advance to a future context where we don't know the the facts of that context. Today's a great example. I don't think in September of 2020, we anticipated that inflation would be running as high as it is now. We didn't anticipate the supply demand imbalances on the labor side that we're seeing. That's a classic case where you want to be very careful about making forward commitments. Number two, I would have been willing to say in September 2020 that we would have been we would remain highly accommodative until we reach full employment and price stability. But that's different than keeping rates at zero. Uh. As you as you approach full employment and price stability, the neutral rate starts to drift up. As if as the neutral rate drifts up, if you're committed to keeping the Fed funds rate at zero, it means you're actually getting more and more and more accommodative. As you approach full employment and price stability, I don't think you want to get more and more and more accommodative. I think you might be willing to stay highly accommodative, but I think, uh, I think it's probably appropriate and f- future committees, my guess, will think so too, that you want to make some adjustments to remain highly accommodative, but there's a difference between doing that and keeping rates at zero. So I, I felt it was too rigid uh, in tying the hands of future committees, and that's why I dissented.
1: You mentioned the importance of anchoring inflation expectations at two percent, and of course, there is some irony that you know, as soon as the Fed introduced this new framework and said it would tolerate inflation um, going above or under two percent, sort of moving in this range. Of course, after many many years, the Fed finally seems on track to reach its inflation target at precisely the moment that it said it's you know less important. I, I wonder. How are you thinking about inflation expectations at the moment? And are you seeing any evidence that those are starting to increase?
2: Yeah, so what, here's what I'm seeing broadly from, from contacts. We're seeing in our work at the Dallas Fed a broadening of price pressures. Hmm. So on the, on the positive side, some of the extreme moves in, say, used cars, lumber, other individual items. We're expecting those uh, may well moderate somewhat. But on the other hand, what we're seeing is a broadening of price pressures. Why? Due to the semiconductor shortage, that's starting to ripple to a broader range of consumer items. Material shortages, we think will be more persistent than some might expect. And again, the supply demand on labor, that and those imbalances we think here at the Dallas Fed will take longer. And so our expectation For 2022, is that the headline PCE number will be in the neighborhood of two and a half percent? So it won't be. It might not be the eye-popping numbers that we're seeing this year, but it will be still be elevated. What I'm learning in discussions with contacts: big businesses will be able to handle uh, elevated inflation much better than small, mid-sized businesses. Big businesses can use scale. They're they're actively merging. They can invest in technology. Small, mid-sized businesses don't have those levers, and what I'm hearing pretty broadly is is, uh, most businesses I talk to are are raising prices, intended to raise prices more, and are getting more confident about their ability to raise prices. I'm also seeing that, again, if you're a low-moderate income person with a job, higher inflation is biting into your share of wallet more so than it does somebody who's more affluent. And uh, I'm hearing a lot from low-modern-income communities and their representatives that we, we do extensive outreach, Rich, that they're seeing real stress in trying to make ends meet, even though their constituents are heavily employed. And so what does it tell me? It tells me it's very important that the Fed anchor inflation expectations at 2% and that, yes, we... We want to meet our inflation target of 2%, but we also want to be cognizant of the impacts of uh, letting inflation uh, run a little bit to excess. And so uh, I take that 2% commitment very seriously. And back to where we started, that's one reason why I'd rather ne- soon take the foot somewhat off the accelerator, uh, reduce some of these excesses and imbalances or, d- or do less to be perpetuating them so that we maybe have more flexibility down the road and how we can handle the Fed funds rate in 2022 and beyond.
0: Do you see momentum building on the committee for that view, start to take the uh, foot off the accelerator on the asset purchases side? I probably,
2: I, I'll avoid speaking yeah. for the committee, <laughs> but I, I do believe when I started uh, speaking out, I guess it's now two, two and a half months ago, I felt it was very important that the tapering discussion get on the agenda, that we begin the debate, and I think I I, I at least am a much more comfortable that as a committee we're in a much better place and that we're actively having the debate. We're obviously having disagreement, but I think that's healthy, but I have a lot of confidence in the FOMC that when we debate and disagree and we put these items on the table, you know, we'll we'll get to better policy judgments. So. I'm much more comfortable where we are right now than where we were, say, a couple of months ago.
0: I I want to go back to what you were just talking about the moment before, contacts that you have in your uh, district. And you kind of uh, talked about this earlier, that you expect labor imbalances to persist a while. Dallas Fed President, Texas is one of the states— that ended the unemployment insurance expansion earlier than the rest of the country. And it's sort of like this real-time laboratory or some of these states, a real-time test, the degree to which that has had an impact on um, labor availability. And so I'm curious in those conversations you have, particularly with business leaders in your district, what are they seeing on the labor side? What was the impact of that? And why do you expect that these labor imbalances will continue perhaps for longer than people think?
2: So I've felt for some time, and I've said this publicly, that the unemployment benefits were only one piece of a larger puzzle. And what's the larger puzzle? We've had 3 million retirements uh, since February of 2020. We have a million and a half, approximately, workers who are caregivers who've left the workforce. Uh, um, we, we still have fear of infection. And Some of these workers will come back into the workforce, but some of these workers are 55 and older and they're in reasonably good financial shape. And COVID has caused them to rethink whether they really want to reenter the workforce. I'm hopeful that with expanded childcare, in-person school, that will help get a chunk of the caregivers back into the workforce. But uh, this aging issue, which has been with us for years, is going to stay with us for the foreseeable future. And every data point we look at, and I'll talk with my contacts also, suggests the labor force is now much tighter than these headline statistics would indicate. And I I think when you lose three million workers to retirement and a million and a half to, to caregiving, even if you get some number of them back, and again, with demand being very strong, we don't have a demand problem. Great recession aftermath was about a lack of demand. The aftermath of the COVID downturn is more about supply and supply demand issues. It's not a lack of demand. And I think it's very critical that we recognize that.
1: Hmm. So a question related to um, the labor tightness point. The Fed has been describing the recent increase in inflation as transitory, and a lot of people have been trying to figure out what exactly that means. Could you maybe describe whether or not the Fed has sort of signposts or things that it is looking at to determine whether or not inflation has gone from transitory to something um, that is more of a permanent problem. And then secondly, I often wonder if the Fed kind of regrets the choice of words um, on transitory, like maybe, maybe the right way to frame it would have been narrow inflation like inflation in specific areas and specific things and what you're looking out for is broader signs of inflation
2: so tracy you'll notice from my public comments over the last three months uh i've resisted using the term transitory mm-hmm. i would have preferred that the fomc did not use the word largely the term largely transitory and i've been fairly vocal about that I- i've said consistently. I don't want to put a label on on what we're seeing.
0: Mm. What
2: we are seeing is, yes, to your point, a number of extreme price moves, uh, used cars uh, as an example. But what we're also seeing uh, is a broadening of price pressures. Contacts I have in semiconductor industry and a range of industries are telling me that these supply, demand imbalances for materials are going to last longer than people might have expected, and and I do believe the supply-demand imbalances for labor will last longer uh, and will be more persistent. So, no, I it's it's a term I would prefer not to have used, and it's a, per, it's a term I've avoided using.
0: You know, I want to go back to something you said that was interesting, and this idea that if if the Fed is committed to keeping rates at, say, zero until— full employment, maximum employment is reached, then implicitly it's actually increasing the uh, stance of accommodation because the neutral interest rate is theoretically going up as that approaches. And if the nominal rate of uh, Fed policy is the same, then you're increasing accommodation. That being said, I do feel like in recent years, there has been uh, some growing skepticism that some of these variables, like say the neutral rate of interest, are really knowable in real time. And I think even Chairman Powell, I don't remember whether it was his 2019 Jackson Hole speech or maybe his 2018- I think um, 2018. 2018 speech, right. Questioned whether sort of real-time stars, so to speak, our star and so forth, are useful, that in real time we can actually sort of like know these things. How have you personally, or have you personally in, you know, Sitting aside the pandemic and watching the unemployment rate fall from five and a half percent to four and a half percent to three and a half percent, without a meaningful pickup in inflation, have you personally, I don't know, changed any of your views or premises about the knowableness of some of these very vari- variables?
2: Yeah, and and I'll start with the background. I'm not a PhD economist. I'm a business person. So as a business person, I was trained over a couple of three decades that. Uh, theoretical data points are useful to think about, but you got to be very careful about uh, understanding there's a great deal of unpredictability and uncertainty about them. Having said that, I think the concept that there's an equilibrium rate is a, is a good concept. Trying to get too uh, specific as to what that neutral rate is, that, that's the part I'd be careful about. And so I, I think the concept that there's probably some equilibrium rate, and that that, by the way, that equilibrium rate, because of aging demographics, uh, I think has been declining, uh, and you can see it in the declines in treasury yields and, and government bond yields around the world. That's a pretty good indicator that prospects for future growth are more sluggish, and that tends to have a downward impact on the neutral rate, and so. Uh, That helps explain why the Fed funds rate and other central banks around the world have had much lower interest rates than they have historically. It's because prospects for future growth are more sluggish. So I think that concept is a useful concept. Now, the the other thing we've done a lot of work here on the Dallas Fed, though, regarding inflation is there's a big structural trend that's been going on for the last number of years in the economy, and it's technology and technology-enabled disruption. That has limited the pricing power of businesses. And, and this is why I've said as you see more wage pressure and supply demand imbalances for labor, those businesses that have scale and can use technology to work around that have a distinct advantage. Small, mid sized businesses, uh, local restaurant, retail store, don't really have those levers. And that's why we're, we're seeing a divergence. Between how small, mid-sized businesses are dealing with these wage pressures and inability to hire, and large businesses, and for small businesses, it's it's really it's restricting their hours, it's eating into their margins, it's causing them to question their business model, it's pushing many businesses I talk to to think about merging and getting scale, and, and I think that's uh, that's an important trend to be aware of.
1: So we've talked quite a bit about the inflation question. I'm wondering if you could maybe um, zoom in a little bit more on the full employment target and talk to us about how you're seeing that and how exactly you're measuring full employment, especially at a time when Chairman Powell has expressed a desire to tackle inequality in the job market. So what does full employment actually look like to you?
2: Pre-pandemic, I looked at a full dashboard, but I bored in specifically on the headline unemployment rates for the whole population, uh, for Black citizens, Hispanics, women, those with high school education or less, uh, as well as uh, a measure called U6, unemployed plus discouraged workers, plus people who work part-time who would rather work full-time. Mm. Uh, I still look at all those measures today, but I, we broadened out our dashboard. Dashboard even further, to look at things like open jobs, the quits rate, some of the conference board measures. And I think that I, I think it's very appropriate to be looking at different groups to look at their um, their labor force participation and unemployment rate, and trying to look at opportunities to reduce the, the slack in those groups and get them back into the workforce. But I think in assessing how tight the labor force is. It's never been more important to look at a wide, wider set of benchmarks than before, and that's why you're probably not going to hear me use pre-pandemic targets uh, in thinking about full employment today. I think structurally, these supply-demand imbalances are more pronounced. I think we've got more structural issues, so it makes me look at a much wider number of items and a much bigger dashboard than I looked, than I looked at pre-pandemic. And that's caused me to say, and we wrote a piece on this two months ago, the labor force, from what we can tell, is much tighter than the headline measures would suggest.
0: Can you explain that? Why? Because, you know, one of the things, obviously, and you mentioned it, economists on Wall Street now are now looking at things like the black-white unemployment gap. And I don't think I would have ever recalled seeing Wall Street research really, like, focus on that as one of the, you know, Two years ago, let alone a year ago, even, and and we've been looking at it. We've
2: been looking at it here at the Dallas Fed ever since I for five years. So, what do
0: you see? Like when you see that, and it had started to narrow significantly um, pre-crisis, then then got blown out again. But what do you see now when you look at that? And when you say you think the labor market may be tighter than some of the traditional measures suggest, what do you what are you looking at on your dashboard? Uh,
2: We took a step backward, unfortunately. during COVID, and we saw it, we we were seeing uh, improvement pre-COVID, and now we're we're seeing more divergence. It's it's starting to improve, and a little and, and there's some narrowing, but we've taken a step backward. Even worse, we've seen uh, a number of issues. We've seen a drop in enrollment in skills training among uh, Black and Hispanic students, and I hear this from superintendents. We've seen senior classes. In at-risk communities, having a lower graduation rates, we're seeing higher dropout rates, and we're hearing lots of reports from school superintendents I speak with who are telling me they worry that, you know, grade school kids, uh, particularly those who had to work remotely and and from at-risk communities, have probably fallen behind more and they're trying to figure out a way to catch them up. So we're seeing all that. So some of that can be dealt with through monetary policy, and some of it means real local action, and maybe in some cases national action, to improve early childhood literacy, full day versus half day pre-K, more access to Wi-Fi, better childcare access, more childcare access where kids are read to, beefed up skills training. I think it's going to take all those pieces of the puzzle to help address these issues.
1: Hmm. Um, A very broad question for you now, but I'd love to hear your answer. So The past year or so has clearly been unprecedented in many ways. Is there one thing in particular that stands out to you as surprising or unexpected?
2: I think that the structure of the economy continues to evolve. So technology, technology technology-enabled disruption and scale was important pre-pandemic. It's become even more critical today. I think the importance of access to child care, uh, early childhood literacy, improving uh, and awareness and access to skills training is even more important today because uh, I think I'm disappointed. I guess one surprise is a disappointment is uh, I think some of these supply demand imbalances on the labor side, some of it can be addressed with monetary policy, but we need a, a broader action. I think these structural changes in the economy and these persistent supply demand imbalances in the labor force is an unfortunate development and a surprise. We can do something about it, but we got to call it out first and then take actions broadly to address it. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that by me talking about this and talking to local leaders about it and national leaders and taking actions here at the Dallas Fed, we'll take some of those steps to address these issues. But that's probably the biggest challenge, and I guess development since the pandemic that uh, is is more uh, pressing.
0: And I I just have one last um, you know sort of real time question, but obviously um, COVID isn't over, and you know there's concerns about new variants, the Delta variant potentially delivering a setback in terms of some of the returns of the services economy that we saw. I'm just curious, like from a sort of like risk management perspective and, you know, thinking about the next several, the, ne- the sequencing of policy going forward, is that something that you're, uh, that you're thinking about and watching?
2: It, we really are. and spending an enormous amount of time, and I'm talking to infectious disease experts every couple of days and doctors and br- broadly. Uh, we, we've been doing this for months. As long as it's still the case that vaccines are effective in minimizing hospitalizations and death, you might get COVID, but you probably won't get very ill. As long as that continues to be the case, I think the impact of the Delta variant will be we will not see a step backward in the economy, but we might not see the progress we were hoping to see. And I think it's going to delay the matching process uh, between uh, businesses who are trying to hire workers and workers stepping into the economy. And it probably will exacerbate some of these material supply-demand imbalances and labor supply-demand imbalances. It doesn't mean we'll grow more slowly, but I think it may, we're going to have to be even more patient in seeing this matching process occur, would be my guess.
1: So you mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation that one of the reasons you were keen on tapering sooner rather than later was because of excesses and risks building up in the market. And I just wonder, you know, interest rates and asset purchases tend to be a very blunt tool to change um, behavior in financial markets. Is there something that the Fed could be doing on the macro prudential side to address that issue?
2: So let me talk about what I'm seeing, then we'll talk about what can be done. Um, I I worry that there's um, excess, people are moving out the risk curve, uh, whether it's institutions, individuals, people are taking more risk because they can't earn from cash. And in some cases, they can't even earn from, you know, unless they're taking duration, they can't really earn from bonds. And so what we're seeing pretty broadly in all the measures I look at, people are moving out the risk curve. And credit spreads are historically tight. The question is then when, when those excesses get more normalized, that could be a jarring adjustment. And then I look at the housing market. And we see that the Fed is buying a meaningful percentage of net new mortgage-backed securities issuance, and we're seeing uh, elevated home prices, which is going to translate into higher rents. Again, what I worry about is for low-moderate income communities, rent increases are coming for those communities, and I worry about their ability to absorb them. So, what what can be done? I think a lot of these issues are not with the banks. Uh, I think, while not perfect, stress testing. Uh, and tough capital requirements with the banking sector have uh, have had a very uh, have had a meaningful positive impact. The issues i 'm talking about will likely occur either in the non bank financial sector. so what I would love to see then is in other parts of uh, the government that that can oversee uh, capital requirements transparency good disclosure to be monitoring uh, these excess risks. I worry about the ability of the financial sector to intermediate the flows when things normalize. And I do worry about, in addition, away from macroprudential, just excesses and imbalances in the economy. Higher rents would be one of those examples that real people have to pay. That's not a macroprudential issue. That's probably just an economic side effect that we need to be aware of at the Fed.
0: Rob Kaplan, thank you so much for coming on Odd Thanks, Tracy
2: and Joe. Great to talk to both of you.
0: That was great. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much,
2: Rob. Does that make sense to Wonky or (laughs) Tracy? No, no,
0: that was was just right.
2: All right, thanks. Great to talk to both of you. Thank you.
0: Take care, Rob. Thank you. Tracy, I don't know. I always sort of have to like pinch myself that these important policymakers come on our podcast. It's always like such Mm -hmm. a treat to uh, hear from them. No, for real. It's really cool.
1: No, totally. Um, It's always fascinating to hear directly from a policymaker who is actually thinking about this day in and day out and trying to address it. Um, One of the things I thought was interesting, and I think one of our previous guests, it might have been John Turek. Brought up this idea that Hmm. as you approach full employment while keeping rates and monetary policy low, you're clearly sort of easing more and more and more. And and when when you look at it through that perspective, then Rob's call to taper sooner rather than later doesn't look so extreme.
0: Yeah, I mean that is very much a John Turek point. You're you're spot on. Though I did think it was interesting that rob specifically talked about um disassociating the taper with the start of the rate hike cycle which is really like because there is going to be you know we all remember what it was the 2013 2013 taper
1: tantrum tantrum, yeah
0: and so i do think that like there is going you know there's going to be some language trickiness whenever it does begin because the market will interpret that as tightening and you know uh it's President Kaplan just now pointed out, there's like two things, there's take your foot off the accelerator, but there's also hitting the brake. And his and his point of, well, we don't necessarily, this, just because we maybe want to take our foot off the accelerator doesn't mean it's anywhere time to hit the brake. It'll be interesting to see if and when the Fed does begin the taper, what sort of communication they have around that, basically uh, to affect his point that the market should not read into it that, okay, therefore the next rate hike is going to be in six months or whatever.
1: Totally. Um, And it definitely sounds like it's something that they're thinking about already. Um, On that note, the other thing that struck me from the conversation is, I guess, how much of a change there's been in the Fed's framework, which is kind of obvious, but all the new communication problems that that kind of throws up. Yeah, I, I guess. Based on the conversation around full employment and inflation, you know, looking through temporary high levels of inflation, it just feels like there's so much more room for interpretation nowadays. And everyone is trying to get a better sense of what exactly those two goals, average inflation, you know, over what time frame, um, full employment measured by what, actually mean.
0: Yeah, no, exactly right. T- t- tons of ambiguity still mm. and new policies in a new uncharted territory, to use that cliche again. <laughs> fascinating time and a fascinating conversation.
1: Yeah, uncharted squared. Okay, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you can follow our guest on Twitter, Rob Kaplan, president and CEO of the Dallas Fed. He's at Rob S. Kaplan on Twitter. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.